We continue our sermon series, Living Faithfully in a Shifting Culture, looking at the life of Elijah. But before we uh, look at our verses, I'll start today by talking about worship. One, because it has much to do <clears throat> with what we have looked at so far in 1 Kings. And two, because it has so much to do with what you and I do every day. But we don't think that way. The word worship is generally used in a religious sense but our understanding of the word is incomplete and it's kind of fuzzy. You see, worship is not just religious. It isn't just corporate like we are here together today. It isn't just, though it can be all of those things. All of us worship every day because God made us as worshiping beings. It's part of our human nature. And here's my best explanation at the moment of what worship is. When we worship, you and I connect our hopes and dreams, we desire for well-being, we connect our desire for meaning and purpose to people and things. That is, we look to people and things, ourselves and others and things, to accomplish dreams, find well-being, and to have a sense of purpose and more than that. And you can look at being both uh, big things and small things. Our life is filled with small moments of worship. Like when you think, and I think, everything so good if my team wins. That's a moment of worship. And so it, we feel like it's all wrong now because somebody, I'm not going to name any names, has my spot on the couch. That's a worship moment as well. But there's also worship that is a lifelong pursuit. And God made us to have a lifelong pursuit where we put our relationship with God first in our lives. But so easily you and I take God down a few notches or just throw him out of the window and we put other things there. It could be success, success or wealth or comfort or acceptance. And it has everything to do with what our catechism was that we just read. That we're not, we're not delighting in God as God. We don't look to God as God. We look to him as our heavenly butler. We don't think of him at all. But he's the one who created us and deserves for us to have to put this relationship with him as first priority. Now, this understanding of worship was true in the Bible times. It's true today. And so as I look at what's going on here with the people of Israel and the statues that they have and the way people use statues to worship, what I see is this. Those people were worshiping comfort and wealth and achievement, all the things that we do, just in a different way. Now, because what happens, what we're looking at today in our verses is so closely tied to what happened in last week's verses. Let me do a quick recap. And it starts with a showdown at Mount Carmel. Baal versus God. And Baal failed totally. He did not show up. He not, did not do anything because Baal is fake. He is a made-up idea used to replace God. God did show up. And as I think um, somebody earlier was mentioning, the contest had two groups of people. It had Elijah by himself and 450 prophets of Baal. 
Each of them had an altar of stones. They put wood on top. They had an animal they had killed on top. But the contest was who, whose God is going to answer with fire. Elijah made his side a lot harder by having people bring buckets of water and dump it all over everything. Soak the animal, soak the wood and the stones. There was, there was a pool of water around the bottom of it. God shows up. There is fire from heaven that not only burns up the animal and the wood, but also the stones and the dust and the water. It was a miracle. But you know what? Witnessing a miracle does not automatically change people. Just look in the New Testament at Jesus. He didn't do just one. He did dozens of miracles. And people saw him do them, and it made no difference in their lives. And as you continue reading in 1 Kings, what you see is that this miracle didn't really make any real change for Ahab or Jezebel or the people of Israel. They didn't change. And this helps us understand this idea from the scriptures, the Bible, about what it means to be spiritually dead. See, a person like you and me can be physically alive, walking, talking, thinking, doing all kinds of things. But if we're spiritually dead, even though God is acting, even though God is doing, even though God has given us evidence that he exists and that he's powerful and that he's our creator, we don't see it or we don't see it for what it is. We're blind to it. We are dead to it. Well, after the fire comes down and consumes everything, and the people are amazed, and they are, they are amazed, just not changed. Elijah kills the prophets of Baal. Now, a lot of people today, especially in the West, hearing this, we go, oh, oh, stop right there. This is so over the top. This is so primitive. It tells you why I don't read the Bible or follow it. Because that's just so wrong for them to die. Is it? Is it, though? In my daily Bible reading, I've, I'm now in reading through the book of Deuteronomy, and several days ago I read Deuteronomy 17, where God very clearly, plainly says that the consequence of anyone in Israel worshiping a false god is death. But even that is not the root, if you want to go to the root. Go to the root, you have to go back to Genesis 2, where God says to Adam, before any wrong has been done, that the consequence of any kind of sin, and sin isn't just the bad stuff you and I do and say. It's like Mark was saying, it starts in the mind, it starts in the heart, with our attitude, where we say, I'm going to get what I want. I don't care what anybody else says, even God. And God says the consequence of any sin is death. Because when we turn away from God, we're turning away from life. Well, when you read the Bible, if you, even if you don't agree with what it says, if you understand what the Bible says about sin, you will realize that every one of us sins against God every day. But we're not dead yet. Now, the death rate is 100%. Okay, we are going to die unless Jesus comes again. But we're not dead yet. Why not? Because of God's mercy. Yet even again, God's mercy is not seen as mercy. It's now come to be expected. Of course, you're going to let me do what I want to do. 
Then Elijah prays and God sends rain. And remember, the people haven't changed. He sends rain anyway. And then God enables Elijah to run from Mount Carmel to Jezreel, the city of Jezreel, which is about 20 miles. And he's going so fast that he actually outruns Ahab's horses to get there. Well, that takes us to our verses for today, 1 Kings 19, verses 1 to 18. We're going to start by reading the first six verses together. So remain seated, and let's read this together. 1 Kings 19, 1 to 6. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down. So we see in verse 2 that Jezebel threatens Elijah with death. Now, Jezebel's message is not an idle threat. Remember from a few weeks ago, it was Jezebel that had all of the prophets of God that she could find in Israel killed. as She's helping to establish the worship of Baal. So it's not an idle threat. Well, let me pause here, because there are two ways to read these verses, verses 1 to 18. There's a much more common view, and then there's another view that has good merit. I'm going to explain it. And it all hinges on two different versions of the Hebrew in verse 3. Now, not to get into it, but there are little differences in copies of the Bible all over. This one either way works. Either way, there is something we can learn. So we're going to look at both of them. We're going to begin with the more common view that says, Then he, Elijah, was afraid. The other, in the other view, the Hebrew says, Then he saw. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. So if Elijah is afraid for his life, which is the way it reads in the, in the ESV that we have, what has Elijah forgotten? Well, he has forgotten that his life is in God's hands. He's forgotten that God had fed him miraculously for three years, up until just a few days before this, when God shows up at Mount Carmel, which, again, he's forgotten that as well. And I mention this because Elijah isn't the only one who forgets what God has done. We forget too. We're going along and all of a sudden an unexpected problem happens and it's so easy to forget and say, what is going on? What did I do wrong to deserve this? God, did you forget? Did you go to sleep? We forget what God has done. Now, if you put up a map, 
It's a little hard to see, but the, the light green area at the top is the kingdom of Israel. That's the ten northern tribes. And toward the top of that, where that little hook is on the Mediterranean, you see Mount Carmel. The bottom part, it's kind of the light gray, is the kingdom of Judah, the two southern tribes. And way down deep in it is Beersheba. From Carmel to Beersheba is about 100 miles, which is how far Elijah goes. And then in the verses we're going to look at but have not yet seen, God's going to have Elijah go from Beersheba down to Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb, which is another 200 miles. So just to give you a sense of where, he, where, where Elijah went when he ran. Now, a lot of people, as they read this account, see Elijah here as depressed because he's asked God to take his life. And if you notice, God does not answer him directly. Instead, God lets Elijah sleep and rest. And if you think about it, Mount Carmel was pretty high intensity, okay? I mean, Elijah had to stand around for about six hours while the prophets of Baal are praying to their God who never answers. And then you have the rest of the account. And then he's just traveled 100 miles, very possibly on foot. He's probably exhausted. So in verses 5 and 6, as we read, God provides food and water and lets Elijah rest. And then in the following verses, God feeds Elijah again. And then God miraculously sustains Elijah for 40 days on that food. And in those 40 days, he's traveling 200 miles down to Mount Sinai. God did the same kind of thing with Moses. Now, here, God sends Elijah to Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai. And if you, were, if you know your Old Testament history, you know that it was at Mount Sinai that God actually spoke audibly the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel. And Elijah is there on the mountain, and he's living in a cave. And in verse 9, God asks Elijah, what are you doing here? Now, you know, there's a way to ask that question that's really not a question, it's an accusation. When you ask somebody, what are you doing here? Okay, you're not asking, you're accusing. I don't think God was accusing Elijah. And I know that God was not asking Elijah, what are you doing here? Because God didn't know when he wants to find out. God already knows. I believe God asked this question because God was pursuing a relationship with Elijah. And in verse 10, Elijah answers. Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars. They have killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Let's take a second and look at that again. Elijah says, I've been very jealous for you, God. And that's true. He is, he is God's prophet right now. He's God's spokesman. He's the person that confronted Ahab. He's the person that confronted the whole nation of Israel and called them back to a right relationship and right worship of God. He says, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. And when you ever see that word, anytime you see the word covenant, think covenant relationship. And that's true. They had. So it's true that he was jealous for God. It's true the people have forsaken their relationship with God. It's true that they've torn down the altars to God. It's true that 
the prophets of God had been killed with a sword. That was by Jezebel. He says, I, even I only am left. That's false. He says, they seek my life. It's actually Jezebel who seeks it to take his life. And that's true. So you've got true, 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 false, true. Notice that as you read this, the sense is that that one false statement seems, in the middle of all these other true ones, seems so big and it makes everything so negative. And again, Elijah is forgetting something. Just a couple of days before this, he met Obadiah, a man who works in Ahab's household, but he's a man who loves God and worships God. Obadiah is the one that saved a hundred prophets of God when Jezebel's on her killing streak. So he's not alone. There's Obadiah. There's the hundred prophets of God. But consider this. Here Elijah is talking to God, and it's almost as if he's forgotten who God is and what God has done. And again, you and I do that same thing all the time. You and I talk to ourselves all the time. If we do it out loud and we're answering back out loud, people look like, like we're crazy. But we actually do talk to ourselves all the time. But we don't always realize what we're telling ourselves. And sometimes if we're not careful, we can actually lead ourselves away from God's perspective on life. We have to be careful of what it is we're telling ourselves and what we're listening to. So here's Elijah running, and it looks like he's running out of fear. How would you and I respond to Elijah if we were God? Okay, probably angry. Elijah, you are so fired. Or some people like to do the guilt trip. Elijah, I am so disappointed in you. Or a modern response. You know what, Elijah? I am done with you. I am, I'm just writing you off. You didn't know it, but that was the last straw. That's it. You're gone. Nothing else to do with you. How does God respond to Elijah? Well, in verse 11, we see this. God told Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And then God comes with wind. Not just a cool breeze, but wind strong enough to break rocks. He comes with an earthquake and everything is shaking. He comes with fire. And then there is the low whisper. And we're told God isn't in the wind that breaks rocks. He wasn't in the wind, I mean, in the earthquake. He wasn't in the fire. He was in the low whisper. So often, God is gentle with us. He doesn't beat us over the head with a two-by-four. Then God asks Elijah again a second time, what are you doing here? And Elijah's answer, it's word for word the same. No change. So it looks as if Elijah's just, again, blind to what God has done and what, blind to what God is capable of doing. And again, God does not answer Elijah directly. Let me pause here and give you that second view of these verses, where in verse 3 in the Hebrew, it, in some translations, it says, Then Elijah saw. What did he see? I believe that Elijah saw that Ahab and Jezebel, and the nation of Israel had rejected God again. He saw that things were not going to change. 
And the way this is understood is then what happens is Elijah breaks over their rejection of God. Elijah isn't afraid. He is so broken over their refusal to turn back to God that he wants to die. But he does not want to die at Jezebel's hand. And so he leaves and he runs. He gets to Beersheba. God sends him to Mount Sinai. And in verse 10, where he says, I have been, you know, I've been jealous for you, God. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant relationship. There's, they've torn down your altars. He's accusing Ahab and Jezebel and the people of Israel for how they have sinned against God. He's accusing them. And if you look at the Old Testament, at other prophets, often, more than once, you will see God speaking to the prophet and saying, tell the people that God accuses them of their unfaithfulness, of their turning away from him, of their stubbornness, because he's been working using both good circumstances and difficult ones to try to bring them back, and they have ignored him. And so God accuses so you have two ways to read the verses, and both touch us. In the one case, Elijah responds in fear, and too often, you and I respond in situations, to situations in fear. We're afraid that we're going to lose status. We're afraid that, that of, of people. We're afraid of losing something that we want to keep. It's all kinds of things that we can be afraid of, and we respond in fear. The other one, we don't do so much and should do more. And that is that we should be broken. That is, we should grieve over our sin and the sin of others. But remember this, the only way, the only real way to, to properly, safely grieve over other people's sins is to grieve over mine first. And to, to, because otherwise, if I look at other people, can you and I find faults in other people? Oh my goodness. It's just so easy. We can start rattling off all the things we see. And then what happens? It's very subtle. But we think, oh, but I don't do those things, so I must be better than they are. Not. As Mark Van Gils was saying this morning, not using quite these words, we're all on the same level playing field. One, we are made by God, which gives us value. But we've also all turned away from him, and said, I'm going to do what I want to do. We don't grieve that much. Well, in verse 15, God gives Elijah three tasks to do. He says, I want you to go find a man named Haziel, anoint him to be king over Syria, which is the country just north of Israel. I want you to go find another man named Jehu, anoint him to be the next king over Israel. Remember, Ahab's the current king. God says there's going to be a new king. And then thirdly, he says, go find a man named Elisha and anoint him to be prophet in your place. But it's going to be a while yet before Elisha takes Elijah's place because God still has more for Elijah to do. Then in verse 17, God pronounces judgment on Ahab. And he even says that the judgment is going to come through those two men that Elijah is going to anoint, Hazael and Jehu king of Syria, and the new man who's going to become king of Israel. 
And why is God bringing judgment? Because Ahab has not only broken God's law himself by continuing the, the distorted practice of God, but he's now introduced the worship of Baal, but again, not for just himself, he's leading the whole nation into it. And then it's at the end of this section that God answers Elijah's little statement. He said, God, I'm the only one left. And in verse 18, God says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah is not alone. Not even close. God has 7,000 people that have not worshipped and won't worship Baal. Sometimes we feel all alone, but we never are. So what can we take away from this? We see in these verses that God is so patient with, with Elijah and gentle with him, and God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. And so God is patient and gentle with us. We see God's faithfulness very clearly. And as God is working, he's not just building a kingdom, he's also building relationships with people like you and me, relationships that will last forever. We also see with the nation of Israel that they clearly did not have a heart for God. Yes, they were amazed at what God did, and they, in a sense, claimed to be his, but they really didn't have a heart for him, and they are not alone. You see, every one of us has a spiritual heart problem, and it's the kind of problem that reason and evidence won't fix. You, you can't truth somebody into understanding who God is. You need the truth, but there's more that has to happen. The kind of heart change we need is one that only God can do, and it's a miracle itself. But you look at how God was working even with the people of Israel, with Elijah, with us. Why is it that God can be so merciful to us? How is it that God can love us without compromising his perfect character? It's Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which the Bible tells us was planned before God created the earth. That was going to be done. Jesus is not only our substitute, that he takes the punishment in our place, he's also our rescuer. And today, in just a few minutes, we get to celebrate his rescue with communion. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being so faithful. Thank you for being gentle and merciful. Thank you for forgiving, because we'd have no hope if you didn't and if you weren't, but you are. And so we thank you, and we ask, Lord, that you'd work in us, that we'd see our need for you every day going through the day so that we can see ourselves rightly and see other people rightly and respond in a way that builds up and doesn't tear down, doesn't cause more hurt and difficulty. Lord, we thank you that you are doing this, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's been a while since we've been able to celebrate communion together, and so I'm glad that we can... Uh, have this, but it's going to be a little different. It's for those of us that are uh, worshiping here in, in person. Because of the, the guidelines that we're working under, our procedure is going to be a little different. I'd ask um, Larry and Paul if you'll come. 
they're going to be releasing you in rows, starting from the front, working their way to the back. I'll ask you as they, as they come by and, and uh, point you that you come around on the side aisles. And Mark and Dennis, if you go ahead and get to your tables. You'll see we have two tables in the front. We're using uh, prepackaged um, wafer and juice because, again, part of the, the uh, guidelines that we have says that we use disposable things. We also got a trash can by the exit door that you can use on the way out. So as you're released, you come down the side aisles. I would ask you then, as you're doing that, to keep spacing between your families and then pick up the uh, elements and then come back to your seat. And um, then after you're back in your seat, I'll explain, because there is a, a little bit uh, tricky in actually figuring out how to uh, decipher one of these things. We're going to be singing as we are going through the process of everybody coming by to, to get the elements. And then once you're in your seat, I'll lead you uh, further in taking the elements together. So Jesse, if you'll begin us, and Larry and Paul. Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still.
So if you take a look at your cup, you'll, you'll, it's a little hard to see, but there are two little tabs on the top. There's a clear one, and you may have to work a little bit to, to distinguish them. There's a clear one, and then a thicker purple one, okay? The clear one covers the wafer, and the purple one covers the juice. Don't open them all the way yet, please. So let me read from 1 Corinthians 11. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's that word remember that we're supposed to not forget. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and you, sealed by the shedding of my blood. This do, in, do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing... You are remembering, you are celebrating the Lord's death, his gift, until he comes. And then he gives a warning. So if anyone eats this bread or drinks this, the cup of the Lord unworthily, that person is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That The idea is this, Jesus made such an amazing sacrifice for us, his own life. And we're guilty. We didn't deserve what, he, what he's done. Yet he died for us. And any time, as I was talking about worship, any time we put anything at the top of our list besides our relationship with God, we've demoted God, and he is not to be demoted. And that's what it means when we come here unworthily where we have. And all of us do. That's the thing about it. All of us do, at times, demote God as not being number one in our life. And so he calls us to confess. And we don't have to come and grovel and beg that he forgive us, that he be merciful to us. He's promised us already. He knows. He knows who we are. He knows what we are like. He says, I know. I know what you do. And I know your struggle. And I have an answer for that. And every time you do turn away, every time you're unfaithful, I stay faithful. I love you. I give to you. And so in taking the, the bread and the wine, the, the bread and the juice, it is a way for us to, to remember that God is faithful and he's calling us back anytime that we turn away. And so he, Paul continues, this is why we need to examine ourselves. Take a look in light of God's word. Where are we? We're, we're not, we're not going to be perfect this side of heaven. Are we good with God or have we demoted him? Have we grabbed something else, anything else, desire that we have, and clench our fist and say, this is the most important thing in my life. If you have, God says, open your hand. Open your hand and trust God. And so as we, if we don't, he says, we're eating and drinking judgment to ourselves. And so as we, as we have the bread and the juice, as we remember Jesus' love and his sacrifice, it encourages us to not turn away because we're reminded what it cost Jesus to get us in right relationship and to keep us there. And it helps us when we have troubles and difficulties because we're reminded God is for us. He even says, God even says, if I've done this for you, 
If Jesus has died for you at such huge cost to Jesus and God the Father, is there anything good that he won't give us? The answer is no. He is going to give us exactly what we need. So if you're here today and you've made your own public statement of your faith in Jesus, your need to be forgiven, your need for God to work in you, and if you've been baptized, then participate today. Just as I mentioned, if you're here today and you've had your fist clenched, some other desire, God says, open your hand. Open your hand so that you can take what God has offered to you and trust that God's going to deal well with you with this other desire that you have. But if you're here today and God is a stranger to you, then don't partake. But consider what it is that God offers, that God offers to forgive us, to make our relationship with him right. When we're the ones that have turned away, we're the ones that walked, and he calls us back. Let's go ahead and take that top cover and peel it back and get the wafer. At the meal, Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. This bread represents Christ's body. It represents his body being broken so that you and I could be made whole. Eat. And I will say it's not nearly as good as matzah. Not anywhere close. The same night, Jesus also took the cup and he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant relationship in his blood, shed for many for the payment of our sins. So now you can take the purple, very carefully peel it back. This represents Jesus' blood, and Jesus paid our debt with his life's blood. Drink. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for paying the debt that we've incurred, paid it with your life. And then you rose again from the dead, defeating death so that you could offer us life that will never end, life with you. We can get a taste of that life, and we do get a taste of that life with you here. But, oh, it's going to be so much better when we see you face to face. Thank you for reminding us of your love, your faithfulness, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction, and then if you would, throw your cup in the trash can there on the exit. Now may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Go in his peace.